Today's teaching text comes from Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so they all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them to, out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, who, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagnes, and this is the son of Thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James and the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Issachar, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. Good to be here. Glad you are here. And uh, my name is Russell. I am the pastor for our community. And um, if you're new or you're catching us online, we are uh, glad that you're gathered with us in this way, too. Um, Before I begin, I want to uh, just share a little bit about our community groups, because normally we would be getting started with our community groups here um, in the next week or so. But we wanted to take in feedback on how we should gather, how we can do that comfortably, how we can do that smart, and ways in which um, we can really um, gather well and safe. And so all that goes to say, uh, we've taken in all that feedback. Those are in formulation. And so the sign-ups for that should be ready next Sunday. And then the second week of February, we're going to be gathering uh, again. And I just want to say this. um, Community groups are a place where you get a sense of being a family as a church, like this is great, and, and this is really important that we come together and we worship, um, but also our voices matter in worship, right? And so when we gather, it's another way of worship. It's a way of sharing our journeys together, our stories, reading the scriptures, um, and I, I guess the best way to say it is a place to be known, and that's what we really want. We want to give a place uh, to be known, and that's the Christian faith. The Christian faith is primarily understood in community with one another, and so we're really looking forward Um, to that uh, the second week of February. All right, uh, let's pray, and then we'll look at this Mark 3 passage. I'll sort of, um, I'm excited, I'm really excited about today, the the ways in which our lives have seasons and stages, and we're going to bring our life, uh, our life into the text today in in the seasons and stages of our lives, and uh, I don't know, you'll just see, I guess you'll see along the way. Let's pray. And so, Father, I love that we just sang that song, We Are Here For You. And so there's a, there's a lot of good brunch this morning to go to. There's some great friends to connect with. There's a lot of things that we can be doing. Um, but we intentionally are carving out space and time um, to come and um, to talk about our spiritual journeys, to meet new friends, um, to worship you. And so I just pray uh, that even in the, the realm of this idea of seasons and stages of our lives, that uh, we would bring all of ourselves in here. And um, by your Holy Spirit, would you meet us here Uh, that we might be known, but also that we might be loved. Um, God, we are desperate for love, and so we're here to be shaped in that way, and I just pray that you would be in our midst. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
So um, this week, my family uh, took a day off in the middle of the week, and we went to the Botanical Gardens in the Bronx. Anybody ever been? Okay, good, good, good. I'm, I'm glad. It was absolutely fantastic. Very strange to say that in the dead of the winter uh, that I went to the Botanical Gardens, um, but they had an amazing holiday train show. Um, incredible. I couldn't believe it. It was a bit pricey, but um, fantastic. I can't even imagine what it looks like in like April, May. It's like spring is uh, blooming, but um, I was ready to go at the end, and my wife's like, let's ride the tram, and we both looked at each other like, no, let's go, and then we looked at our daughter, and she said, I want to ride the tram. I'm like, no, I don't want to ride the tram. And so we get on the tram and we start driving around. And I'm like, this place is incredible. It's huge. There's so much to see. There's so much to do. And that's what got me thinking, like, what does this place look like in April and May? But I'm actually really glad that we went in the dead of winter because there was somehow beauty in the midst of the cold of winter. And it got me really thinking about the seasons of our lives, the ebbs and flows of our world and that's what I want to talk about today, the ways in which our lives are sort of like seasons, where they're cyclical, right? Things seem to happen in the same ways over and over again, or we meet a new stage of life that is asking us to take a step forward. With that, let's actually start in the garden, because this is going to help us understand uh, the gospel of Mark and set it in its place. And so when the Bible opens, when you open up the Bible, it begins in the garden, and it starts with the story of creation. What's happening is, is that the Bible's main character, God, is creating. He's creating what's, um, what theologians call ex nihilo, which is he's creating out of nothing. That's what Genesis 1.1 says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so Genesis 1 and 2 is perfection. Like they're, they're the ideal standard and way of being. So God created Adam and Eve in his likeness in the garden. There's no pain. There's no suffering. And we read that, but we, we really got to pause and think about this. Like, what, what does that actually mean? Imagine the goodness and the beauty of no pain and no suffering, no sickness, no bad news, no anxiety, no depression, no fear, no broken relationship with family and friends. Like, I don't know about you, but my heart longs for those things, right? That is what creation is all about. And in Genesis 1 and 2, you have a repeated phrase, and the repeated phrase is, it was good, it was good, it was good, meaning Humanity had a moment or a, a place in time where there was perfect peace and wholeness with God and with each other. My heart longs for that, right? But if you keep reading the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, things take a turn or what you might call decreation. So we have creation and then we have decreation, right? And you and I know the story of decreation all too well. If God creates everything for good, we know that there is a dissonance between the goodness that we hear about from God and the realities that we live in in the world, right? There's a gap in understanding. And this is what happens in the Christian scriptures is Genesis chapter 3 introduces sin into the story. What happens? Everything begins to fall apart. Um, African theologian um, St. Augustine describes sin as disordered love. We choose to love ourselves rather than to love God we were created, right, the creation part, we were created to love God supremely, yet when we sin, what are we actually doing? We're turning inward. We're rejecting God and we're enthroning ourselves. And when everyone on the planet is lo loving and living for themselves and rather for God, what happens? It explains the suffering and the injustice of our world, right? We see this every day on the news, right? You turn it on, it's like politicians putting themselves and their wallets before their constituents. What happens when we see these things? We actually get a grasp. We begin to understand 
sin and injustice, right? That actually makes the world make sense in some way, this Christian worldview of sin, right? When I get a coffee for myself and don't think about anybody but myself and I come home to my wife and she says, did you want to ask me if I wanted anything, right? I begin to see the injustice of our world, right? You see, there it is. You get the amen, right? So that's the story of decreation, right? Creation, decreation, but we're not left there. And this is, it. this is actually why we've been examining Mark's gospel in the way that we have, because Mark's gospel is, is a glimmer of recreation. It's not the full restoration of all things that were promised in the scriptures, but it's a step in recreation. It's to show us what God is like as Jesus steps on to the scene. And, and that's been our attempt, is to make company with Jesus as he recreates in the gospel. Creation, decreation, recreation. And what does Jesus say in chapter 1? I won't, I won't do a full recap of Mark 1 and 2 uh, that we've gone through. Um, but what does he say in verse 14 in chapter 1? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospels. Jesus is coming and saying, I'm, I, it has a radical claim. He's, he's coming and he's saying, I'm coming to bring about recreation the thing that was in the garden, the thing that your heart so longs for, I'm going to come and bring that about. And how does he do it? Through teaching. That's a, that's a mode of recreation. Exercising demons, healing the sick. These are all ways of recreation, wholeness, right? Coming and um, having compassion on the socially outcast, um, forgiving people's sins and pointing people to God. That's this idea of recreation. And so, the reason I do a little recap is because that's actually where our passage starts in verse 7. Verses 7 through 12 in this passage, when you come, when you come um, to the Bible and you come to a passage like this, it's, it's simply recapping what's happened. And I thought the best way to do that would be to recap where we are in the Christian scriptures, creation, decreation, and recreation. And what Mark is sort of doing, you know when you watch an episode of TV and uh, you're like in the middle of the season and it pops up and says, previously on? This is what Mark is doing. This is, this is Mark's previously on, and he says that people are coming to Jesus from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Edomea, Jordan, Tyre, Sidon. It's his way of saying people are coming from the north, the south, the east, and the west. Like people are coming from everywhere. And then he gets in verse 9. I, I love this passage here. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. And so Jesus is like a mega church pastor. Like everyone's rushing to Jesus, right? And he's got like, get the boat ready so I can leave this place or so I can preach from the boat. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Recreation. But why are people flocking to Jesus in this passage? Why are people flocking to Jesus? And the reason we find out in the passage, at least this is what it says, is that Jesus can heal, right? Jesus is like this walking city MD in a world where medical skills are primitive, right? When someone was able to heal people of almost anything they could think of, you get a crowd. Like that would, that would obviously draw a crowd. And so as much as we think maybe people are coming to hear his wisdom or his teaching, it's probably more likely that the crowd is coming because they want something from Jesus. And then we pick up in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired, and they came to him. A uh, quick like, Bible study note here. Mountain, sea, we're getting a lot of uh, locations here. When you see that in your Bible, sometimes you just underline it, and you, then you remember. That's, that's where this scene takes place. It takes place on the mountain. And these are important. It's like a 
Jesus is like doing like a strategic battle here. It's like advance, retreat, advance, retreat, advance in the synagogue, advance on the shore, but retreat to the mountains, retreat to the boat. And so we're understanding here where sort of Jesus is and what his goal is. And then verse 14 says, and he appointed here the 12, whom he also named apostles. Apostle simply means one who is sent, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And then you get the list of the, the 12. And you and I are like, okay, 12, 12 apostles. Like, I, I, I got that, right? These are the, the chosen 12. But there's some things that make them um, quite an eclectic bunch, right? They're lacking in experience and qualifications um, because, and most people don't really share this when they look at this passage, is um, most scholars agree that the apostles here are in their late teens. And so maybe 17, 18, 19 years old, something like that. And there's, there's, of course, debate on this, but I can tell you right now, I wasn't ready to follow anyone at 17, 18, or 19 years old. Like, I just wasn't ready. Uh, one scholar I was writing, uh, reading this week um, uh, made this fake letter. I, I found it really hilarious. Um, it, he was acting as if he was a management consultant um, giving wisdom to Jesus on who he should invite um, to follow and work for him. And here's what it says, giving Jesus advice. It is our staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have a team concept. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and gives to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both register high score on the manic depressive scale. But get this. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. This is just Jesus' people. Like, this is who, who and I don't know, maybe, maybe the thing they're already thinking today is, I'm in good company, right? Like, that, that sounds good. But what is Jesus inviting these 12 into, and what is Jesus inviting us into? And the word disciple um, can get kind of thrown around um, really loosely or um, lightly, but the content of this idea of discipleship is what's important. And, and verse 14 says everything we need to know. And he appointed the 12 so that they might be with him, right? With. With is the language of intimacy, right? Daddy, come play with me, right? Or you're thinking about a, um, like a long-distance relationship. Uh, you're talking on the phone all the time, and what are you saying? I wish we could be with each other, right? And so a disciple, um, if you're taking notes, a disciple is a person or an apprentice who has decided to be with another person in order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become who that person is. And I think that's where this word apprentice is actually really helpful. If you've ever had an apprenticeship, you know that you're there to learn. You're placing yourself in a learner's posture. You're placing yourself under the authority of another. And what are you doing? You're there to be with them, right? Jesus is not some unfeeling spiritual sage who's doling out pious principles to his disciples and to us. That's not who he is. Jesus enjoyed time with his friends. 
Jesus could have shown up in power demanding people worship him or could have like pushed in with military might, but Jesus and his genius gives the intimacy of his presence. And for Jesus, presence always precedes action. Presence always precedes action. He says, come be with me. I, I'm here. I'm, I want to do this with you. Now, I want you to think about uh, the work that you do or if you're in, in school or maybe you've had a, a boss previously. I want you to begin to think about um, a good boss. And you're, you're questioning, right? Are they present? Are they relational? Are they invitational? Are, do they share their life with me? Um, I always feel fortunate because uh, my first year out of college, I, I began working at a church. Um, I actually ended up working there for seven years as a pastor, and I had an amazing boss. And I always look back at my um, seven years. I was in Kansas City. Um, I look back at my seven years in Kansas City as an apprenticeship. I was a student learning from a church community. And specifically, I came underneath a, a, a specific leader as a student. My boss, his name was Brian. And if you've been around here at, at all, um, Brian loves to come to New York, and so you're going to see him here uh, regularly. Um, but I was his apprentice. He took me with him. He would drag me to meetings with him, prayer meetings, city partnership meetings, elders meetings, hospital visits. Brian would just say, you're coming with me. And then along the way, what we would do is he would um, dispense information into me. That wasn't the goal, information, but he would dispense little axioms al along the way uh, that were really formative to me. He would always say, Russell, nothing motivates like a deadline, and that's why I finished my sermon this morning, right? Like, when, when, um, when we would give feedback uh, to each other and to our staff, he would say, Russell, don't forget, three positives to every one negative. Right? He would just deposit these little bits of information into me that stuck. And now those are like, they're like layers in my brain when I'm thinking about something. It's a way of, it, it was a way of forming me. But the most important thing that Brian did for me was he allowed me the freedom to fail. He would say, um, what ideas do you have for this? How are you going to get people out into community with one another in our community groups? What are you going to do? And he would say, try new things. And I would say, well, it costs this. And he'd say, here's the money. Try. And so he gave me, underneath his leadership, the ability to fail. And then he taught me how to lead meetings and balance life. And um, even more than all of these things, um, I watched him live a relationally balanced life. I watched him give, 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 give to our church. And then after church, he would say, come for lunch. And I would come to his house, and I would see him love his kids and be present with his family. And I feel like for me personally, I'm more prepared for life because I had someone to imitate, someone who loved his wife, someone who loved his children. And then when it was time for us um, to leave, to, that, that we really felt like uh, we were to start a new church, this church, um, we cried. We sat in this coffee shop, we, we looked at each other in the eye, and we cried because we knew things would be different. But those deposits would remain. And so my apprenticeship was about presence and intimacy. But it's not just relational, right? Like, the, the information along the way mattered too. I think about, um, maybe the best word is competencies. Right? I'm picking up little competencies along the way about how to do this, but how did I do it? Those competencies came because I was with him. And that's what being with someone does. It gives us the competencies. That's what the, the disciples are doing. They're learning on the go. They're learning along the journey. Um, our, our drummer who's over here uh, is uh, David. I was hanging out with him this week, and he was telling me about this apprenticeship. There he is right there. He's waving. Um, he's telling me about this apprenticeship that um, he's doing at this, this drum shop, and like he is gung-ho about this drum shop. He's like trying to show up there. He's volunteering there 
to learn everything about it. And I, I know, David, there are perks for you along the way. You, you got the free room, you know, to drum in with your time. Um, but it's called Maxwell's, right? Maxwell's. Maxwell's. And at Maxwell's, um, it, we, he and I were texting back and forth. Um, they're serving Broadway and studio musicians. Um, people are popping in to rent gear and, and spare parts. And there's vintage drum sh- sets there. But specifically, tell me about this guy named Jess there. And, and um, that he said the, the shop, um, a Jess at the shop is like the most knowledgeable handler of vintage drum sets. And he said probably in the country. And I was like, David, what's your, what's your goal there? And he says, I think my goal would be a weekly shift there, access to the practice rooms, and if I'm lucky enough to buy Jess a beer and ask him all my questions, right? How does David learn more about drums? And like, clearly he's proficient, right? Like, I would say, I'm done learning about this. Like, I got this. You know, that's how I would approach it. And he's like, I just, I just, I do it by spending time there. I spend time, I watch Jess in the shop. I, I just be present there. And this is how apprenticeship to Jesus works too, in the presence of Jesus. Dallas Willard says this, we can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of life he chose for himself. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. We can, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the type of activities he engaged in, by arranging our whole lives around the activities he practiced in order to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of the Father. What is apprenticing? It's in the process of being with so that we can be like. We're in the process of being with Jesus so we can be like Jesus. Okay. Now let's take a turn. We're going to take a turn here because that's like content in your head, right? Like this is what um, a disciple is. This is someone who's saying, I'm an apprentice under um, Jesus. But without acknowledging the presence and the relationship, we easily make uh, faith, Christianity, whatever it is, we make it about gathering information and then applying it correctly, right? Like even, even today, the temptation is to say, okay, I have a principle, now I just need to go apply that and my life is going to be better, better. Rather than saying, I actually have deep intimacy with Jesus and that's changing me from the inside out. It's changing my motivations and it's sending me out to be um, a new person. Like God is recreating a new person in me through the Spirit. And so what we're actually doing here um, every week is actually we're, the, the primary thing that we can do here is be, re, be reminded that we're loved. Like that's the thing that we come here and, and say, we walk out of here, like if, if there was a goal every week, we would say, I'm loved by God and I just I spent time responding to him and I'm, I'm refreshed, I'm renewed, and I'm walking out of here. And so what I want to help you with today, like Almost, um, maybe, maybe the best way to do this is to imagine like we're sitting one-on-one for a few minutes here. And I want you to begin to think about or evaluate your spiritual journey. And no judgment. Like wherever you are spiritually, um, if you're like, uh, you know, my friend just invited me here. Like I've been to church a few times. Or like I haven't been to church in 10 years and I feel guilty about it. Or like we've been looking for a new church. Whatever it is, wherever the, the stage of your journey is, what I want to help you do is identify the season and stage of your journey. And what I found in my research this week is absolutely um, insane. There has been um, spiritual mothers and fathers throughout the centuries that have actually devoted their life um, to these stages of faith. Uh, Stage theory, um, if if you like what I'm saying today, I feel like today's sort of an intro into some of these stage theories. Um, You can read a book, um, Sacred Fire, by Ronald Rollheiser, and then the other book is called The Critical Journey, um, by, um, it's Hagberg and Gulich, 
Um, and so if you want to get into it in greater detail, they're, they're fascinating reads on stage theory, but I'm going to really like simplify stage theory for us today, present it, and then we can go from there. And so, and the reason that this is important is um, we're in the room and we're all coming from different places, but not only that, um, we come from different denominations possibly. Um, we've walked different lives, um, especially in a place like New York where, you know, it's like people come from all over the world, but my following of Jesus probably looks different from Josh's even at um, a different age. So, three distinct phases. We're going to cover the first two here. The first phase is essential following, and the struggle here is to get our lives together. Essential following, the struggle to get our lives together. And by the way, we got our screen back. It'll be here in two weeks, so it'll, it'll be helpful. I, 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 thank you, I know. Um, mat- the second one is mature following, the struggle to give our lives away. And then the last one, which we won't cover today, is a radical following, and that's the struggle to give our deaths away, all right? And so this first one, essential following, the struggle to get our lives together, and maybe you're like, I already know that I'm in that stage. Like, I'm just here trying to get my life together. That is awesome. There is no judgment in that, all right? God has designed us in a very unique way, right? At, at puberty, we're like starting to be like driven out of our family's home, um, and we're being called to create a new home, right? And it is crazy how much responsibility we give to 18-year-olds in our society. Like, it's absolutely crazy to think about. But then I was reading the text, and I was like, hey, maybe that's pretty normal, right? Um, so we're pushed out of, our, um, out of our family's home at that age. Fascinating, I was reading this week, um, Emerging Science is actually telling us that the brain doesn't fully develop until, does anybody know? 25, right? So it's, it's crazy that in this essential journey, the, the different sages and like all these mothers and fathers, um, in Sacred Fire, he says that, uh, Ronald Rollheiser says that this stage can last um, from teens and into our 30s and possibly our 40s. This is our essential um, following, right? Um, and this stage is about searching, right? We're searching for a new identity. We're searching for a vocation. We're searching for a career. We're searching for financial stability. We're searching for a right place to live. We're searching for intimacy, right? Here are our questions in this stage. Who am I? Where do I find meaning? Who will love me? How do I find love in a world full of infidelity and false promises, right? Uh, These searching questions are actually most of the themes for the music that we listen to. Um, uh, This morning I was like looking up lyrics of different like top 10 songs. Um, I didn't, this is a little bit older, but I was uh, Taylor Swift, Tay Tay, right? What did she say? Yeah, we're happy, free. I got you, Elizabeth. Yeah, we're happy and free, confused and lonely at the same time. It's miserable and magical. Oh yeah, tonight's the night when we forget about the deadlines. It's time. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling 22. Everything will be all right. You just keep me next to you. All right, there you go, right? <laughs> This is, this, thank you, thank you. This is the searching, right? I asked, I asked Josh uh, this morning, I was like, what's the song for the angst of your generation? He says, it's Get Lucky by Daft Punk. We've come too far to give up who we are, so let's raise the bar. Our cup's up to the stars. She's up all night till the sun, and I'm up all night to get some. Like, that's, that's, that, this is our generation, right? It's like searching, longing. Who will love me? Who will, who, how will I find Love. I asked David. He said wrecking ball, and so he fails. Um, oh, the angst, right? I came in like a wreck. Um, and so this may be your stage, though, right? It's a time of development, discovery, um, identifying who you 
really are. And let me actually say a note, because I think there's a temptation, because we're going to talk about the stage of maturity. In this essential stage, there's actually a temptation um, to say, oh, I feel shamed that I'm not um, taking the next step. Uh, like I was thinking about, I was telling my wife this yesterday, I was thinking about um, the movie with Matthew McConaughey, I think it's Matthew McConaughey, uh, Failure to Launch. Like there can be shame in not taking that next step. But let me actually pause and say this. This essential following, the struggle to get our lives together, this can be very exciting, right? Like you, you know when, if, if some of you have been following Jesus, um, like you remember the beginning. I, I remember the beginning when I, when I first started following Jesus, somebody shared like this good news with me. I was going into my bedroom as like a 13-year-old, like reading the Bible and had a journal. And I'm like praying for people. I'm excited. Like I'm having all these like aha moments. Things are actually, the world is like making sense to me. This is an amazing time, right? This drives us to read books and take in content, listen to podcasts, work out our issues, go to counseling, all of these things. And this can be a beautiful time in our life. And this time is very present in Scripture. I was, I was just flipping through very, very quickly because I didn't want to give us so much content here in terms of, um, of the scriptural examples. But the disciples, what are they asking? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The rich young ruler. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like, God, how do I just get to heaven? Like, that's, that's what I want. Uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Right? It's like the, the deep questions of the soul. The, the prodigal son goes off, wastes his inheritance, and is left searching because, what? He's at the end of his rope. He has nothing left. Uh, the crowds. The crowds are a really great example, right? It's the essential question. Jesus, can, I, can you just heal me? Like, if, if you heal me, the rest of my life will actually make sense. There's a, a great passage in John chapter 6. Uh, Jesus just got done feeding the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish. And he um, heads off to this synagogue nearby, and the crowd begins to follow him. And in perfect Jesus fashion, he, he never wastes an opportunity to teach. And he gives them this um, analogy about literal bread and the bread of life that they need. And then, all of a sudden, Jesus in John chapter 6, uh, you can go look at it later, but he starts preaching this bizarre sermon, and it's like very scary. Um, maybe not even bizarre, maybe just creepy and weird. He says this, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Okay, I'm leaving that church. Like, I will raise them up on the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. I don't know about you, but like, I'm out, right? It's crazy stuff. But here's what Jesus responded to them. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate your loaves and had your fill. I was feeding you and you were following me then, but then you abandoned me, right? This is the temptation of the central following. Is Jesus, you, you, I met my need, I'm not at the end of my rope anymore, I'm not at the bottom of the pit anymore, and so I'm going to walk away. But Jesus honors simple faith. And so if you're in this essential, if, you, if you're already knowing, like I'm in that essential place, and you want something from Jesus, he wants to provide it for you. I, I actually believe that. Like, God wants to meet you there, and even if you're trying to weed out, like, is this genuine? Is this about me? God seems to honor that every single time. And so, the struggle to get our lives together, but there's a transition. It's not just the essential following, but we move into mature following. And I want to be, be careful here, because that first part is real, and some of you are in that place. And so, the, the transition is not to judge you in any way. I want to I make that abundantly clear. But the Bible does speak about maturity, growth, and development, or the theological word for it is sanctification, which simply means like we're, we're becoming more like Jesus. Here's how the writer of Hebrews puts it. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. And life has a way of bringing responsibility to us, doesn't it? Life has a way of pushing us into maturity um, before we're ready, right? Rent, right? We live in Manhattan, like rent, dependence, right? This is, this is very real, right? But when you're a baby, you don't get a choice, right? Someone has to feed you. When I, when I woke my son up to feed him last night, like I, I, I ha- he, he could do nothing. He could do nothing because he is a baby, right? But at some point, my son is going to grow up and his priorities are going to shift, right? My son is going to be learning not just how to be fed, but actually he's going to be learning how to feed himself. And then eventually, he's going to be learning, hopefully, how to feed others. Uh, The Spanish nun, um, Teresa of Avila, said this, When one reaches the highest degree of human maturity, one has only one question left. How can I be helpful? How can I be helpful? And so that's the the transition, right? And that that transition, um, in terms of ages, that can happen in your 30s, in your 40s, in your 50s something there, and, and maybe even further into thinking about how is it that I'm, I grow into this mature person where the struggle then becomes I'm giving my life away. It's not just about me anymore, but I'm giving my life away. And that's not to say that our struggle for self-identity and private f- fulfillment, like that, that, that goes away. I know that we're haunted by the restlessness of our youth, but the default then begins to shift, right? The mature following happens when we begin to live more for others than for ourselves. And maybe in like a practical sense, um, you're thinking about your career or your vocation or uh, your, your family, uh, a greater sense of responsibility. I know that this is, a, um, I would say for myself, um, if I were to identify my stage of, of following, it would be that I'm taking the turn from essential to mature um, because I have a wife and two kids. And that's pushing me to rethink the ways in which I see the world. I can't just think about myself. I can't just run to the store. I can't just run to the coffee shop. And what that means for me on a personal level is I'm realizing how selfish I am. I'm realizing how work comes so naturally to me. The way that I see things, the way that um, I view the world can be very selfish. But by nature, my life is necessitating my maturity. Like I'm being pushed into maturity. And you can also guarantee that um, Katie and I are, um, when our kids turn 18, we're going to kick them out of our house, and uh, we're going we're gonna to hit a new, new phase. Oftentimes, we're forced into this phase. We're forced into maturity. Some of us, if you're honest, you're forced into maturity before you wanted to be there. Because these are the questions that we become concerned about. How do I embrace my limitations and come to peace with my responsibilities? How do I cope with life's disappointments, boredom, and resentment? How do I live more deeply, more generously, and more meaningful to others? And so the turn just takes place. You're like, I'm not just thinking about me anymore, but I'm actually required to think about other people. Um, back to John 6, um, crowds are abandoning Jesus. Like, everyone's like, I'm out. Like, this, is, this is getting too hard. This teaching is too weird. And this is what it says in um, John 6, verse 66. After this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And so he looks at the twelve that we just named. He says, you guys, like, do you want to leave like them too? And Simon Peter stands up 
I love this. O Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Peter's, Peter's answer, answer here should actually serve as a, um, a model of maturity. His answer fundamentally is, yeah, I kind of do want to go, actually. Like, I'd actually love to, to ditch this. Like, I'd, I'd actually love to be done. But I know better. I have come to believe you are who you say you are. You have the words of eternal life. And so, essential following, mature following, we don't have time for the radical following, um, and most of us aren't into that stage of life yet. And so what's your stage? What's your season of life? Um, I think, think even about um, your work, the freedom that you have, um, the plans that you're making, the conversations that you're thinking about for the future. What is your stage? And how is that affecting your spiritual journey? Right? Because our life, these, these two things are not disconnected. Our spiritual journey and like our work and our relationships, those are not, those are not disconnected. They're, they're deeply connected. And so if you're in this essential stage, I would own it. Right? You're asking the question, who am I? What is meaning? Who loves me? This is a time of development and personal discovery. Um, a great example of a step you might take would be um, a spiritual gifts test. Um, something we've done around here that I don't always think is, um, I think it's a good starting tool, and with discernment it can be helpful, is the Enneagram. Um, personality tests, some of them can actually be helpful. Um, conversations with a friend. But even more than that, my question to you, if you're in that essential phase, would be this. Are you creating healthy spiritual rhythms that leave space for God? Are you creating healthy spiritual rhythms that leave space for God? And particularly, I'm thinking about prayer. Prayer. I, I think that the, um, the tension becomes is uh, we're so focused on work, we're so focused on the relationship, and we're going, going all the time, that we don't leave any space for private prayer with God. And if you're in sort of that... Um, if you're in sort of that transitional phase where you think you might be kind of like me, where you're like, I'm, I'm kind of moving into like a more mature phase of my life, acknowledge where you are. Um, for some of you, like post-college depression, that is like a very real thing. Acknowledge that in the, the phase of your journey um, so we can ask the right questions. And then for those of you who would say, I'm in that mature phase, I'm, I'm struggling to give my life away, my question to you is this, are you embracing your limitations and are you forgiving those from your past? And that might seem like really wide. Like, why, why shoot so wide? Are you embracing your limitations and forgiving those from your past? I think um, the temptation is to drive on with our lives without looking back. But in order to go forward, oftentimes we have to look back. And we have to begin to talk to and forgive the people that, um, that wronged us, that we wronged. Um, and then part about embracing your limitations is just reality. Uh, when you move into a mature phase, like I, I know for me, um, I love an early morning coffee uh, with a friend to talk about scripture or to talk about a stage of life. I can't do that right now. That's, that, is an, that is me embracing my limitations. That would be unrealistic um, for me. And so what does that begin to look like for you? And basically what we're asking today is this, is God, what are you up to? And we're naming the stage. We're not grading the stage. We're not grading what we're doing. We're just naming. We're saying, I'm in, I'm in this essential phase, and these are the questions that I'm asking. This is purely diagnostic, or I'm in this mature phase, and these are the questions that I'm asking. And then this is where I'll wrap up, and I'll, I'll pray today. My challenge to you today would just be to take a step. What is your next faithful step in your journey? 
this is a spiritual journey, and I don't think we, um, the temptation is to think we arrive, but we don't arrive. We actually come to a place where God meets us, and the question is, uh, next faithful step. I don't know what that is for you. Is it reading the Gospel of Mark with a friend? I'm not going to try and, you know, tell you these are the three things you should do. Is it um, prayer three times a week when we wake up? Um, is it baptism, going public with our faith in a way that's tangible for others to see? Um, but pray about that and take that step. If, if, uh, if we can be a resource for that, let's, let's pray together. Let's talk about that um, today. Let's pray. I love this passage in, in, in verse 14. The simple desire that we have. And he, you, Jesus, appointed 12 so that they might be with him. And so, God, I pray that um, that's what today might be, an opportunity to be with you where uh, our lives are bumping into you and we're learning about who you are, we're learning about who we are. And I pray that we would be our most authentic selves, that we wouldn't try to um, separate um, our lives and our work and our relationships from uh, what you're doing in the spiritual realm, our spiritual lives, and so I pray that we could identify today um, our motivations, that we could name our, our stages, and that the struggle is real, the struggle to get our lives together and the struggle um, to give our lives away. I pray that you would give us guidance as we name that today. We don't want to be alone in those struggles, God. We need your help. And so I just pray um, that that would amount to um, more beauty in our city, <laughs> more joy in our offices, more learning and wisdom in the classroom, um, but most of all, um, more joy for you, God. More pointing towards your son, Jesus, and saying, you have everything we need, God. And so we love you and we give you this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen.